I come here today with a message. As president, I have a responsibility to act with urgency and resolve when our nation faces clear and present danger. Right. Get acting, Mr. President. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. Nope, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ, down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ in Seattle on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the Internet and the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites. At least the best ones. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us for another busy edition of the Bradcast. We have got a lot to try to get to today. Wish us luck. Good luck. Thank you very much. (laughs) And to you, Desi Doyen. Yes, thank you. you there. All right, well, let's uh, start here, as promised uh, yesterday, with what is currently available regarding noteworthy results from Tuesday's primary elections in the great state of Maryland, specifically in the highly contested governor's race there, highly contested in primaries of both major parties on Tuesday. As mentioned yesterday in previewing this uh, governor's race, I noted that we may or may not have any results at all today, depending on how close the races were, given that the state of Maryland now requires election officials for some reason to wait until the Thursday after elections to even begin opening absentee mail-in ballots. I don't know why they do that. But they do. So uh, final results here, or even results that are final enough to best guess who the winners will be, well, that could be delayed for some time. Now, I know that Maryland does allow um, uh, ballots to arrive a week or so later after Election Day, so long as they are postmarked by Election Day. But why they can't open them or begin opening them until Thursday, I don't know. Anyway, you know, next day results after elections are always unofficial and largely best guesses with computer reported results verified by no human beings whatsoever by that time, sometimes ever. 
Uh, anyway, that's a caveat I always try to offer anyway. But here there's an additional caveat about the delay in counting any of the mail-in ballots. With all of those caveats out of the way, the corporate media has apparently enough confidence that they are, in fact, calling the Republican gubernatorial primary in Maryland. For Dan Cox, the far-right state legislator endorsed by former President Donald Trump, AP reports that he was the uh, Cox was the winner of the Republican primary for Maryland governor on Tuesday, defeating a moderate rival backed by the popular outgoing term limited Republican governor there, Larry Hogan, who became an opponent of Trump's along the way in the otherwise largely liberal leaning state with a Republican governor. Cox's 16-point reported lead, 56 to 40 percent, over the Hogan-endorsed candidate, Kelly Schultz, as we go to air, is enough, apparently, to allow AP to call the race for Cox even before mail-in ballots are opened at all on Thursday. Uh, Cox will now face the winner of the highly competitive and still uncalled Democratic primary in the uh, November general election. As of Tuesday night, on the Democratic side, Wes Moore, the best-selling author who is backed by Oprah Winfrey. Uh, he is the CEO of the nonprofit organization, the Robin Hood Foundation, dedicated to helping lift folks out of pro- uh, out of poverty. He apparently has the early lead after Tuesday night as the focus turns to mail ballots that won't be counted until later in the week. Currently, Moore, who, uh, in addition to Oprah, was also endorsed by the state's teachers union. Uh, Currently, he leads Tom Perez, the former labor secretary and former Democratic Party chair, by about nine points in a 10-person race. But with Democrats more likely to vote by mail, it seems uh, apparently it's still too early to call anything there. This race is noteworthy on the Republican side in that it is it is one of the few Republican gubernatorial seats that Democrats think they may be able to flip this year. But also now with Cox... Likely to be the winner on the GOP side, uh, just like another state, Pennsylvania, where GOP candidate Doug Mastriano is a Trump-endorsed election denier. Uh, Cox is the same. He also opposed the certification of Joe Biden's victory in 2020 in his state. If Mastriano wins in Pennsylvania as governor, He could refuse to certify the presidential race in 2024 if it is won by the Democrat just because he wants to. And that could also be true here in Maryland now as well, uh, which Biden also won in 2020, but which uh, uh, Dan Cox says that he would not have certified had he been the governor back in 2020. So they're saying it right out. Yeah, they are. So with that in mind... Despite being a win for Donald Trump, Cox's victory over the uh, Larry Hogan uh, former cabinet member Kelly Schultz could be a blow to Republican chances to hold on to the governor's mansion in November. Uh, That's at least that's what Democrats are hoping. And that's why, as in Pennsylvania with Mastriano, 
Democrats actually poured a whole bunch of money into Cox's candidacy during the GOP primary. Now, that seems to be a dangerous gamble, of course. So, uh, you know, I, I hope it's one that Democrats do not come to regret in November. Uh, you know, I never blame voters for what they do or they don't do, but I will take this opportunity to remind voters in both Pennsylvania and Maryland that y'all have your part to play right now. Please don't blow this. Cox has uh, been a thorn in Hogan's side over the last few years, suing the uh, the governor's uh, to to block the governor's stay at home COVID nineteen policies, seeking actually to impeach him. He is one of Trump's most prominent uh, Hogan. I'm sorry, is one of Trump's most prominent GOP critics. He urged the party to move on from Trump's divisive brand of politics, while Trump has spent much of his post-presidency, as you may have heard, elevating candidates who promote his lies about uh, a stolen 2020 election. Cox has been one of those folks. He organized busloads of protesters. Just like Mastriano in Pennsylvania, he organized busloads of protesters to go to Washington for the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th. Cox has also said that President Joe Biden's victory should not have been certified. And he tweeted that former Vice President Mike Pence was a, quote, traitor. So, yeah, the uh, Democratic Governors Association apparently put more than a million bucks behind an ad intended to boost Cox uh, because they thought he'd be easier to uh, defeat in November. So now they got what they wished for. Let's hope that that was not a mistake and that voters, in fact, answer the call as uh, the Democrats are hoping uh, or 2024. If they don't answer the call in 2022, uh, 2024 could become a disaster. That's the understated word I have that comes to mind here. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is quite the gamble. But uh, more on that and what could happen in 2024 in a second with uh, some uh, more breaking news today. Uh, in one of the other races called so far by AP in Maryland, uh, called on Tuesday night, Democratic Senator Chris Van Holland uh, was able to beat back a primary challenge uh, just months after he suffered a minor stroke. He is still favored in November to win a second term against Republican nominee Chris Chafee who launched a failed congressional bid back in 2014, but is now back. Uh, turnout was generally light in Maryland, about 25% across the state. Hmm. So while there were some uh, problems with uh, polls opening on time on Tuesday, uh, chalked up to uh, largely to some supplies being distributed late to some of the voting centers or trouble setting up computers at some of those centers. Things appear to have generally gone smoothly on Tuesday, at least as, uh, according to the reports that I have so far been able to hunt down. But again, sometimes it's only later that we hear about problems like that. And the mail-in ballots, uh, that can of worms doesn't even begin to open until Thursday. So we'll keep our eyes out for anything problematic or noteworthy in the days ahead there. But as to the 2024 election, as mentioned, and and the trouble that could be caused there, uh, we've got a bit of somewhat interesting news, I think, 
breaking today. I'm not yet sure what to make of it for several reasons, uh, but I think I need to share it with you. Uh, Among those reasons, there's not a whole lot of information yet on the details, but it is noteworthy enough that I want to give you a heads up about it since it's something we have discussed on past programs and will probably be discussing in future programs. As CNN reported uh, late today, a bipartisan group of U.S. senators reached a deal to make it harder to overturn a certified presidential election during the joint session of Congress where the Electoral College votes are finalized, marking what CNN describes as the most significant response by Congress so far to former President Trump's relentless pressure campaign to overturn the results of 2020. The proposal still needs to be approved by both chambers, both the House and the Senate. It will need 60 votes, of course, in the Senate to break any filibuster attempt, meaning at least 10 Republicans would be needed to support any legislation. Similarly, at least 10 Democrats would also be needed to support this. Uh, Announcement of the plan kicks off what is expected to be a challenging months-long process to get this deal passed into law before the end of the year. According to CNN, the deal is the culmination of months of negotiation led by, ready for this, Republican Senator Susan Collins of Maine and Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia. Oh, boy. So you see, just one of the reasons I'm wary about all of this, along with uh, additional uh, six additional Democrats and eight Republicans Uh, The proposal is split up into two separate bills for some reason. One of the bills is focused on modernizing and overhauling the Electoral Count Act, or ECA, as we have discussed on this program. That is an 1887 law that Trump sought to exploit and create confusion about uh, regarding how Congress counts electoral college votes from each state during that joint session of Congress. The ECA is 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 this really confusing and really poorly worded bill from 1887 that essentially sets out how various members of the House and Senate may challenge any particular electoral college results from the states and how the results are ultimately to be confirmed as required by the Constitution. So as part of this proposal, uh, senators are trying to clarify the ECA and clarify the fact that the vice president only has a ceremonial role in overseeing the certification of the electoral results. Why are you laughing? Because it seems like such a minor thing that lasted just fine for hundreds of years. But, oh, no, now we have to put it into law. No, you're only ceremonial. Knock it off. Right. Uh, He or she, uh, as vice president, uh, can't, as Trump had wanted Pence to do, to essentially unilaterally declare that he would not accept results from certain states and he would throw the election to the House to be decided there or back to the state legislatures to send in new slates of electors. Uh, This bill would make it clear now that there is... Uh, no right for the vice president to do that. This bill makes it clear now that there is a Democratic vice president who will Mm -hmm. be proceeding over such a joint session in 2025 that they may not do that. The uh, proposal dealing with uh, the vice president's role 
according to uh, a fact sheet reported by CNN, would make clear that the responsibility is, quote, solely the vice president's responsibility is, quote, solely ministerial and that he or she does not have any power to solely determine, accept, reject or otherwise adjudicate disputes over electors. It would also make it, yes. I was going to say, I would think Republicans would really want to prevent Vice President Harris from being in a position to stop their next coup. Well, it would. uh, Yes, of course they would. But it would also make it harder for members of Congress themselves to uh, overturn an election by increasing the number of House and Senate members required to raise an objection to election results when a joint session of Congress meets to certify them. Under the current law, you may recall, just one senator can join just one House member to force each side to then, uh, well, they split up. The House goes back to the House. The Senate goes back to the Senate. They debate for two hours and vote on whether to throw out the results from that state where the objection has been lodged. Currently, it just takes one member of each house. This proposal reportedly raises that threshold to lodge an objection to electors uh, to at least one-fifth of the duly chosen and sworn members of both the House and the Senate. I'm unclear here if that means one-fifth of the combined total in other words, if there are enough objections from members of, of the House, then zero senators would need to object. Unclear, but in any event, this presumably makes the threshold much higher than simply one member of uh, of each chamber. In its current draft form. Correct. Uh, the bill is co-sponsored. This bill, again, there's two separate bills here. This one co-sponsored by nine Republicans and seven Democrats who announced the deal. Democratic Senator Mark Warner of Virginia said it would make it harder to overturn an election when the joint session uh, convenes. Uh, He said, quote, anything we can do and show to the American public that we realize how serious that day was, referring back to January 6th, and that we're going to do all we can to prevent a repeat of January 6th is a step in the right direction. He said any future vice president cannot, should not, will not be able to overturn legitimate votes of Americans and their electors, that state's vote, according to uh, Democratic Senator Warner. Now, the newly unveiled deal creates uh, a set of stipulations designed to make it harder for there to be any confusion over the accurate electors, according to CNN. For example, it states that each state's governor would be responsible for submission of a certificate that identifies electors. Congress would not be able to accept a slate of electors submitted by any other state official. The fact sheet says this reform would address the potential for multiple state officials to send Congress competing slates. Well, that sounds good. But, of course, now I have questions and concerns about what happens in the event that, let's say, a governor, let's say Dan Cox in Maryland or Greg Mastriano in Pennsylvania, decides that he just simply will not certify the slate of electors who were actually chosen by the voters in the state. In such a case like that, would a vice president 
not be allowed to challenge those results? Well, it sounds like it, but hopefully members of Congress at that point would still be able to do so. What uh, what a mess that we have caused for ourselves here with all of this or that Donald Trump has caused for all of the us in any event. Uh, the second bill, which is said to be aimed at improving election security, would enhance federal penalties for anyone who threatens or intimidates election officials. That's good. It will also increase penalties for tampering with election records. So that sounds good, too. The bill dealing with election security reportedly also includes a number of other key provisions. One proposal would reauthorize the woeful Election Assistance Commission for a period of five years would require the commission to implement cybersecurity testing for voting systems. I would note good luck with that. Because so far, the EAC, uh, since it was created by the Help America Vote Act, or HAVA, after the uh, year 2000 election disaster, well, they have been wildly underfunded. They have been terrible at testing electronic voting systems for flaws and easy ways to manipulate them. They have, by and large, been a rubber stamp for the vendors, the private e-vote system vendors. Whether this bill improves that, well, that remains to be seen. I suspect we'll uh, discuss that in the days ahead as the bill moves forward, as we can learn more about it. The bill also includes measures aimed at helping states improve procedures for handling mail-in ballots. What does that mean? I don't know. Uh, But uh, this bill is co-sponsored by five Republicans and seven Democrats. So apparently the Democrats like this one better. The... um, Rules Committee, the Senate Rules Committee announced on Wednesday uh, after the release, uh, the announcement of this deal that they will hold hearings on this to upgrade the Electoral Count Act. The announcement is one sign, as CNN sees it, that the newly released proposal is not on track to move immediately to the Senate floor for consideration. It's going to take some time to work its way through the legislative process uh, as uh, senators try to pass it before the year's end. And you know what? No rush. Good deal. Uh, That's a good thing here, I think, to allow some of the outside experts to get a better look at all of this, because in 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 this sort of measure, especially an effort being headed up by Susan Collins and Joe Manchin, for (laughs) Christ's sake, the devil is very likely very much in the details. So I'm glad to slow it down, let experts look at it. But I wanted to give you a heads up about it right now because it could be very important. Uh, And it may slip, as CNN notes, into the lame duck session of Congress between the November elections and January. So, yes, uh, as to the mess that we have made, or more specifically, that Donald Trump has made of all of this, it looks like it's not just the uh, U.S. that's going to have to deal with that mess right now. Trumpism, specifically Trumpism focused on lying about election fraud in Hopes of stealing elections? Well, that appears to be spreading now beyond our borders, specifically by Trump-aligned candidates around the world, or even more specifically here, Fox News-supported Trump-aligned candidates around the world. Thanks to our friend Susan Greenhall, uh, the uh, longtime indefatigable election integrity champ, at freespeechforpeople.org for uh, tipping me off to this story today. But Brazil's far-right authoritarian president, Jair Bolsonaro, 
called dozens of foreign diplomats to the presidential palace on Monday to tell them that he believed the country's voting system could be rigged. This, as the Times describes it, is a potential preview of his strategy for an election that is now 75 days away in Brazil and that polls forecast he will lose in a landslide. Sound familiar? Well, Bolsonaro's presentation was on these facts was or on these uh, facts in quotes. <laughs> Assertions. Yes. Uh, that was not new. He's repeated these claims for years, but his audience here was different. He had invited officials from most of the embassies in Brazil's capital of Brasilia, elevating these claims from domestic politics to, in fact, foreign policy. Which seems kind of troubling. Bolsonaro had promised to share evidence that showed fraud in the past two presidential elections, yet much of his 47-minute presentation, uh, which he broadcast to the public, focused on rehashing information about a 2018 hack of Brazil's election agency and accusations that certain Supreme Court justices were trying to sabotage his re-election bid. Uh, speaking behind a lectern to dozens of seated diplomats, Bolsonaro said, quote, I know that you all want democratic stability in our country and that will only be achieved with transparent, reliable elections. OK, that's correct. Many diplomats at the event were reportedly shaken, however, by the presentation, including by Bolsonaro's suggestion that the way to ensure safe elections was through deeper involvement of Brazil's military. Oh, dear. The diplomats are worried that Bolsonaro was laying the groundwork for an attempt to dispute the ballot results if he lost. As I said, sounds terribly familiar, don't it? Less than three months before the presidential election, Bolsonaro appears to be adhering to the blueprint of former President Trump. And like Trump ahead of the 2020 U.S. election, Bolsonaro is also trailing in the polls. And like Trump, Bolsonaro appeared to be uh, discrediting the vote before it even happens in a supposed effort to increase reliability and transparency at the same time, making it even more like Trump's fraudulent, thankfully failed attempt to steal the election in 2020 by proclaiming fake fraud. Bolsonaro is also receiving help from Trump allies in uh, the form of endorsements by uh, endorsements and right wing political conferences, new social networks and ample TV time from the Fox News host Tucker Carlson. Uh, he had Bolsonaro has uh, publicly doubted the in integrity of the election system in Brazil for years, suggested, in fact, there was fraud in his own election back in 2018. You know, just as Trump did after 2016, when he claimed there was anywhere from three to five million fraudulent votes, uh, despite zero evidence to support that claim. Uh, following Bolsonaro's speech, the uh, Brazil Brazilian Election Agency published a 20-point fact-check of Bolsonaro's claims, sent it to diplomats after his speech. At the end of his remarks on Monday, there was a brief silence as he stood before the audience. Then some of the president's assembled cabinet members decided to quickly break into applause. <laughs> oh, boy. And many of the assorted diplomats then politely clapped as well. So 
Uh, yeah, heads up regarding Brazil's election in 75 days or so as it gets Trumpified, as we've now seen in the U.S., or I guess I should say maybe good luck to U.S. as our elections have become banana republicized, as has been uh, more and more the case in recent years, despite our very best, if often lonely, efforts at times to warn about exactly this. Anyway, a bit more fallout on our broken election system, or at least the one that Donald Trump worked really, really hard to try and break. Uh, And what is looking like some good accountability news that may finally be coming, specifically down in Georgia, one of several states that Trump tried to steal, uh, and some more domestic politics fallout from the Trump era and its corrupted Supreme Court. And if time, Joe Biden begins to take some executive action on our climate crisis after the corrupt Supreme Court and the corrupt Joe Manchin have blocked other efforts so far, even amid a week of broiling, record-breaking temperatures across the globe. Some or all of that is straight ahead. Told you we have a lot to get to today. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Well, we will see. We will see. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As you have likely heard elsewhere by now, things are not going particularly well, it seems, for poor Steve Bannon. Uh, in his ongoing trial on two counts of contempt of Congress for refusing to answer lawful subpoenas from the House January 6th committee, seeking both his testimony on what he knew about Trump's insurrection before it happened on January 6th and documents about, well, all of that. If found guilty, Steve Bannon, Trump's former aide, is facing a minimum of 30 days in prison for each of the two counts and as much as a year in prison for each. Uh, prosecutors will, of course, have to win over a jury, but that has all been getting uh, a fair amount, I think, of coverage this week, so I don't think I'm needed there for the moment. Similarly, down in Georgia, where Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is continuing her special grand jury investigation of the Trump conspiracy to steal the 2020 election in the peach state, things are also not looking good for Team Trump. So I'm sorry to break all of this bad news to you all at once. (laughs) Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, uh, among several of Trump's sleazy attorneys who have been subpoenaed by the special grand jury, he was ordered on uh, Wednesday 
by a justice of the New York Supreme Court that he must testify now before Willis's special grand jury down in Atlanta. Giuliani had been attempting to quash that subpoena after he was instrumental in lying to Georgia state legislators with uh, false claims about massive fraud on election night in Atlanta. And uh, so now Rudy will be heading down to Georgia, it seems, to answer the questions of the special grand jury down there and of Fonnie Willis. Last night as well, co-conspirator Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, who was also subpoenaed, he reached an agreement with uh, Fonnie Willis to move any challenges that he might have about the legality of the subpoena that she issued to him to uh, in this uh, that she would move this that he I should say Graham would move any such challenges down to Georgia in either state or federal court there according to a stipulation filed on Tuesday in South Carolina attorneys for Graham and Willis said both parties will uh, have reached an agreement to withdraw all process and proceedings that were currently pending before the Southern, uh, the South Carolina District Court. Senator Graham has agreed to accept service of a subpoena for testimony from the Fulton County Special Purpose Grand Jury in Atlanta without waiving any challenges or any applicable privilege and or immunity, according to the lawyer. So any potential future challenges to that subpoena will now be pursued in either Fulton County Superior Court in Georgia or the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Georgia, according to the attorneys. But uh, So Graham is dropping his attempt to quash his subpoena now, at least in South Carolina. That follows a ruling by a county judge in Georgia that, in fact, Lindsey Graham must testify before the special grand jury in this investigation. So an improvement, but still very delayed. Well, there's uh, delayed, you say? Yes, delayed in his actually complying with the subpoena. Well, I wouldn't call very delayed. It wasn't that long ago that he was subpoenaed. He does have his rights. He can challenge this in courts. I'm okay with that. Of course, but it um, will take time still. But it all takes time. Yes, it does. But it's all moving really, really quickly now. I mean, even this action, uh, you know, I think it was wasn't it only a week or so ago that subpoena that uh, 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 both Rudy and Lindsey Graham were subpoenaed in this matter. True. And already there has been court action in both, in uh, both of New those. York yes. and South Carolina. And uh, they're I, they got no nowhere to run. It seems to me at this point, I believe they will be testifying. Uh, at the same time, new court documents filed on Tuesday also indicate that Willis has told the lawyers of the 16 fake Trump electors in Georgia that they are now considered targets in this special grand jury probe in light of, quote, new evidence. Georgia prosecutors reportedly had previously considered the fake electors to be witnesses in the grand jury investigation. But the new filing by 11 of those 16 electors who are objecting, who are now challenging their new status as targets of the investigation, a filing there includes a letter from Willis's office to each of the fake electors noting, quote, as our investigation has matured and new evidence has come to light, 
In a spirit of integrity, we feel it only fitting to inform you that your client's status has changed to target. Well, that's nice. In a spirit of integrity, uh, it's only fitting to inform you. As targets, of course, that means that they are being essentially put on notice here that they may be charged with a crime very soon, just in case they suddenly might decide that they would like to become more cooperative about what happened here, about what they know when speaking with law enforcement, etc. Attorneys for the 11, uh, 11 of those 16 fake electors said in their court filing that they are moving to quash the grand jury subpoenas for appearances that would have begun on July 25, calling them unreasonable and oppressive. They're charging that Willis's actions are purely political and that had uh, those electors known that they might uh, be targets rather than simply witnesses, well, they might have previously asserted privileges uh, like the Fifth Amendment right to not incriminate themselves. In any event, point for now, things are moving very quickly uh, in Georgia. It seems uh, to be heating up big time in uh, Fannie Willis's probe into the conspiracy to steal the state's 2020 election. A whole bunch of people could be indicted here in a conspiracy presumably headed up by, yes, Donald Trump, our disgraced former president. We'll see if and when Donald Trump himself is either named as a target here or called in for a little chat down in Atlanta with the D.A., uh, in the meantime, other news of note, as we have been warning both before and after the corrupt right wing extremist Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade, based on the disingenuous claim that it was wrongly decided back in 1973, because, among other, th other things, the privacy rights that were established in the ruling were just flawed, constitutionally flawed. And as we have been warning, if that ruling was, in fact, flawed, as the right wingers on the Supreme Court now claim, well, so were a whole bunch of other key landmark civil rights rulings that were made by the court on that very same flawed premise, namely rulings establishing the constitutional right to privacy in same-sex relationships, in interracial marriages, in the right to use contraception, and, yes, of course, same-sex marriage. Justice Clarence Thomas said as much in his concurrence in the, uh, in the, in the Dobbs uh, decision overturning Roe, calling for all of those court decisions except for interracial marriage oddly enough, to be revisited by the court. And last weekend, so did Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. He tore into the Supreme Court's ruling in Obergefell v. Hodges. That's the one that legalized marriage equality in 2015. He called it overreaching. He claimed that the rulings in both Obergefell and Roe, quote, ignored two centuries of our nation's history by deciding on issues that should be left up to states to decide. He argued that marriage equality was something that needs to re remain up for debate in the states. Well, 
On Tuesday of this week, Democrats in the U.S. House took action in response to all of this, and frankly, not a moment too soon. The U.S. House overwhelmingly approved legislation on Tuesday to protect same-sex and and interracial marriages amid concerns that the court could overturn the court that did overturn Roe v. Wade could also jeopardize others uh, other such rights. Um, in a robust but lopsided debate, Democrats argued in favor of enshrining marriage equality in federal law, just in case. While Republicans sort of steered clear of openly rejecting marriage equality, instead, uh, leading Republicans portrayed the bill as it's unnecessary. <laughs> we it's just we have other na- issues facing the nation. We don't have to waste our time on this sort of thing. It's just not a top priority right now. The Republicans tried to say, as they uh, essentially tried to beg off of having to vote on this issue on marriage equality, on gay marriage and interracial marriage in an election year. As House Democrats vote to preserve privacy rights that most Americans never imagined would ever be on the chopping block again, Senate Republicans twisted themselves into knots on whether Americans really deserve access to the right to marry the person that they love, or even to contraception. Uh, The the House ultimately passed the Respect for Marriage Act with 47 Republicans joining them. Of course, that means 157 Republicans did not join them. In an election year, 157 Republicans voted against marriage equality and against interracial marriage and uh yes next up is another bill from the democrats called the right to contraception act that republicans will have to decide if they're for or against that as carrie eleveld at daily coast observed senator joni ernst of iowa for instance said that she was against codifying birth control protections into federal law really yes sort of Because then she decided to support it, and then she decided to back away from it, all within the space of pretty much one single paragraph in response to reporters. Uh, She said, I don't know that we need to codify things like that. Shouldn't that be states and local jurisdictions, maybe? And then she added, I'd have to see how it's worded, but no, I think women should have access to contraception. But it depends on the definition of contraception. (laughs) So, yeah, good luck with that, Senator. Uh, And she's not even up for election, by the way, this year, just to get an idea about how this these uh, bills, these questions are just tying them into knots, tying Republicans into knots this year. Senator James Langford of Oklahoma, he lashed out at Democrats for making it all too perfectly clear that Republicans want to strip away basic privacy rights surrounding the most intimate details of people's lives. Uh, Democrats, he said, are, quote, trying to, quote, ramp everybody up, leading up to the election to say, oh, my gosh, Republicans are coming after you kind of theme that they seem to be running right now. But they are. Yes. Good. About damn time. Because this is the sort of thing that Republicans do all the time. 
So it's about time. Good for the Democrats. Get in the game, Democrats. Finally, start playing hardball the way Republicans do against you. Call these folks out. Put them on record. Let them call themselves out by going on record that, yeah, they are against same-sex marriage in 2022. They are against interracial marriage in 2022. They are against contraception in 2022? Really? Good luck with that, Republicans. And by the way, keep up the good work, Democrats. Keep up the good work for a change, Democrats. Now, none of these bills were actually thought likely to see the light of day in the Senate. But, you know, now that 47 Republicans ended up voting in favor of the Respect for Marriage Act in the House, that could change. Good. Uh... Finally, (laughs) anyway, a quick break here. Uh, There is more ahead. Joe Biden finally began to unveil his plan to push back against the corrupt Supreme Court and the corrupt Joe Manchin, both attempting to handcuff his administration's actions on our climate crisis. Uh, Desi Doyen, you got that story for us straight ahead on the broadcast on another stupid busy day. Yes, in the middle of what has also become Climate Week, apparently, here on the broadcast. That's straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Desi. The broadcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Hot indeed. Welcome back to the broadcast. As the globe is feeling hot, hot, hot uh, this week in uh, record and terrible ways. Uh, And by the way, it's just one of these weeks. uh, We had so much uh, to cover today. Uh, We're only covering half of what we could have covered on today's show. We will leave (laughs) the other half for our subscribers only hour. Um, (laughs) Which doesn't exist. What? (laughs) Why have I been doing an hour every day for nobody's listening to that? Uh, anyway, so we have been uh, focused on uh, climate impacts and climate policy this uh, this past week following Senator Joe Manchin's corrupt sabotage of uh, President Biden and the Democrats' climate and clean energy legislation in Congress and the U.S. Supreme Court gutting the ability of EPA to uh, regulate carbon and so forth that are causing this climate crisis we're in the middle of. Uh, Of course, in the Senate, it was not just Joe Manchin, the Democrat Joe Manchin, but also 50 Republican senators who also worked with Joe Manchin to kill uh, any chance of of, uh, this landmark progressive climate agenda that Democrats and Joe Biden have been trying to push through. So with all of that uh, now apparently dead, the president traveled to Somerset, Massachusetts on Wednesday to deliver remarks on what is next. Uh, I I guess executive actions are pretty much all that is left. Desi Doyen, you followed that today. 
What happened? Well, Biden today vowed that he would indeed use all of the executive powers and actions that he does have at his disposal mm-hmm. to act on the climate crisis. And, you know, that that uh, former that that place where he was speaking in Somerset, Massachusetts, was mm-hmm. at a former coal plant that yes. is being converted into a hub for offshore wind energy, mm-hmm. uh, specifically to manufacture undersea cables to deliver energy onshore. Um, the project is repurposing from offshore wind farms uh, to uh, yes, onshore? Yes, from offshore you. wind farms to gotcha. onshore. And the, the project is actually going to repurpose the old coal plant's substation and transmission lines, which is pretty smart, and it's already generating new jobs. In his remarks, Biden highlighted that all of these new offshore wind energy projects did not happen by accident. <laughs> they were actually were the direct result of his administration investing in and permitting uh, the domestic clean energy sector, specifically for offshore After about four years of Donald Trump telling us how offshore wind was terrible, it ruins all of his golf courses, it gives you cancer, and it kills birds. Exactly. So uh, he announced, uh, Biden announced new executive steps that he's going to take to combat climate change in this speech, but he did stop short of declaring a national climate emergency. That would enable the use of the Defense Production Act to increase production for clean energy technology Mm -hmm. and products, but the White House does seem to be laying the groundwork for such a declaration in the future, and in his remarks, Biden repeatedly called the climate crisis an emergency. I come here today with a message. As president, I have a responsibility to act with urgency and resolve when our nation faces clear and present danger. And that's what climate change is about. It is literally, not figuratively, a clear and present danger. The health of our citizens and our communities is literally at stake. The UN's leading international climate scientist call the latest climate report nothing less than, quote, code red for humanity. Let me say it again. Code red for humanity. It's not a group of political officials, elected officials. These are the scientists. We see it here in America, in red states and blue states, extreme weather events costing $145 billion, $145 billion in damages just last year. More powerful and destructive hurricanes and tornadoes, I've flown over the vast majority of them out west and down in Louisiana, all across America. It's it's amazing to see. Ravaging 100-year-old droughts occurring every few years instead of every 100 years. Wildfires out west that have burned and destroyed more than 5 million acres. Everything in its path. That is more land than the entire state of New Jersey from New York down to the tip of Delaware. It's amazing. Five million acres. Our national security is at stake as well. Extreme weather is already damaging our military installations here in the states. And our economy is at risk. So we have to act. Extreme weather disrupts supply chains, causing delays and shortages for consumers and businesses. Climate change is literally an existential threat to our nation and to the world. So my message today is this. Since Congress is not acting as it should, And these guys here are, but we're not getting many Republican votes. This is an emergency, an emergency. And I will. I will look at it that way. I said last week, and I'll say it again loud and clear. As president, I'll use my executive powers to combat the climate crisis in the absence of congressional action, notwithstanding their incredible action. 
Now, as NBC News reports, these actions will fall short of the ambitious plans that Biden proposed at the start of his presidency as prospects for his wider climate agenda dwindle in Congress. And that's, of course, how how do they know that? I mean, he hasn't he hasn't he said he's in the next few weeks he's going to unfold all of these. Well, Actions, we know so that how because do they know it's going to fall short? experts, uh, generally experts, say that all of these climate policies in the best case scenario, including Dr. Leah Stokes, who we spoke with previously mm-hmm. this week about this, that the uh, the array of executive actions that are possible could get the U.S. about 70 percent of the way to meeting its goal to cut carbon emissions 50 percent from 20, 2005 levels mm-hmm. by 2030. So it can get you much of the way there, but it is not going to be enough. There's just not enough that can be pulled out of the U.S. greenhouse gas emissions inventory uh, from these actions. At least, right, via executive actions versus an actual law. Yeah. Right, because Congress would be required right. to do that kind of stuff. Gotcha. And, of course, you know, uh, Senator Joe Manchin's vote is required to pass any legislation because, of course, you know, Republicans are blocking, rep- all 50 Republicans are blocking any kind mm-hmm. of uh, of legislation. So specifically, Biden said that he will direct $2.3 billion in funding for FEMA's Resilient Infrastructure Program. He'll increase funding for the Low Income Energy Assistance Program to help low-income families afford heating and cooling costs. Mm-hmm. New funding to help states and communities address the public health crisis of extreme mm-hmm. heat with uh, new cooling centers, uh, deploying energy-efficient air conditioners, also helping with energy efficiency retrofits and and weatherization for buildings. Um, also, new funding for states to upgrade their infrastructure to withstand climate impacts, like impl- improving flood controls and stability for the electric grid, and streamlining permitting for clean energy projects and high-voltage transmission lines to help deliver all of this new clean energy that they will be permitting, hopefully. Mm-hmm. And also, the uh, Interior Department will propose the first-ever offshore wind leases for the Gulf of Mexico. Nice. Yeah. So the White House said that these are just the first of several executive actions that Biden is going to take. And, of course, as we know, it's not going to get us all the way there, but um, it will help uh, make a significant dent in trying to meet not just, you know, Biden's pledge to cut emissions in half by 2030, but also that's our Paris Climate Agreement target and the rest of the world is depending on the U.S. to meet its commitments because we are by far the largest historical emitter of carbon emissions. So we have an outsized responsibility to uh, to act mm-hmm. on this. Um, Biden also criticized, of course, congressional Republicans for their decades of delay. And he concluded by calling on all Americans in all regions and in all sectors and at all levels of of government to work together to address the crisis. Let's clear the way. Let's clear the way for clean energy. And while so many governors and mayors have been strong partners in this fight to tackle climate change, we need all governors and mayors. We need public utility commissioners and state agency heads. We need electric utilities and developers to stand up and be part of the solution. Don't be a roadblock. You all have a duty right now. To our economy, to our competitiveness in the world, to the young people in this nation, and to future generations. That sounds like hyperbole, but it's not. It's real. Act boldly on climate. And so does Congress. Not a single Republican in Congress stepped up to support my climate plan. Not one. So let me be clear. Climate change is an emergency. 
And in the coming weeks, I'm going to use the power I have as president to turn these words into formal, official government actions through the appropriate proclamations, executive orders, and regulatory power that a president possesses. When it comes to fighting for climate change, I will not take no for an answer. I will do everything in my power to clean our air and water, protect our people's health, to win the clean energy future. This, again, sounds like hyperbole. Our children and grandchildren are counting on us. If we don't keep it below 1.5 degrees centigrade, we lose it all. We don't get to turn it around. And the world is counting on us. And of all things we should be acting together on, it's climate. It's climate. Folks, we have no excuse now. We know it. There are answers for it. We can make things better in terms of jobs. We can make things better in terms of the environment. We can make things better for families overall. Joe Biden speaking at the uh, former coal plant, now uh, wind plant, energy hub in uh, Somerset, Massachusetts on Wednesday. The Uh, serving as the sort of cheerleader in chief there, calling on everybody to act boldly on climate. Well, okay, sir, uh, we will ask the same of uh, of you. Indeed. And we will see how that goes in the next couple of weeks as he uh, promises to unfold these programs. I know a lot of people have been calling on him to declare a climate emergency, that that would free up certain government, federal government resources to uh, tackle this issue. We'll see if he does that. For now, he did not do so on Wednesday. Unclear if he'll do so in the days ahead, but as always, we'll be keeping our eyes on it. Thank you very much, Desi Doyen. Yeah. Uh, Des, of course, is our uh, great producer here on the broadcast. Thank you for all of that as well. And thanks to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. And hey, it's hot as hell outside pretty much everywhere now. So just stay inside and get caught up on your broadcast, <laughs> including the uh, special subscript, uh, subscribers only hour. You sure we don't have one of those? <laughs> I'm sure. All right. Well, in any event, thanks to everyone who stops by bradblog.com slash donate to become a subscriber or give us a uh, one-time donation here during our de facto summer fun drive over my birthday week. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You can drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you will find me at the Bradblog. That's it. I'll see you there till we see you here next time, hopefully tomorrow. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.